account of Richard Thornhill, Esquire, who was tried for the murder of Sir Cholmley Deering in a duel, and found guilty of manslaughter. Sir Cholmley Deering and Mr. Thornhill were intimate acquaintance, and had dined together on the 7th of April, 1711, in the company with several other gentlemen, at the toy at Hampton Court, where a quarrel arose which occasioned the unhappy catastrophe that afterwards happened. During the quarrel, Sir Cholmley struck Mr. Thornhill, and a scuffle ensuing, the wainscot of the room broke down, and Thornhill falling, the others stamped on him, and beat out some of his teeth. The company now interposing, Sir Cholmley, convinced he had acted improperly, declared that he was willing to ask pardon, but Mr. Thornhill said that asking pardon was not proper retaliation for the injury he had received, adding, quote, Sir Cholmley, you know where to find me, unquote. Soon after this, the company broke up, and the prisoners went home in different coaches, without any further steps being taken towards their reconciliation. On the ninth of April, Sir Cholmley went to the coffee-house at Kensington, and asked for Mr. Thornhill, who, not being there, he went to his lodgings, and the servant showed him to the dining-room, to which he ascended with a brace of pistols in his hands, and soon afterwards Mr. Thornhill coming to him, asked him if he would drink tea, but he declined, but drank a glass of small beer. After this the gentleman ordered a hackney coach, in which they went to Tothill Fields, and there advanced towards each other in a resolute manner, and fired their pistols almost at the same moment. Sir Cholmley, being mortally wounded, fell to the ground, and Mr. Thornhill, after lamenting the unhappy catastrophe, was going away, when a person stopped him told him he had been guilty of murder, and took him before a justice of the peace who committed him to prison. On the 18th of May, 1711, Richard Thornhill, Esquire, was indicted at the Old Bailey Sessions for the murder. In the course of the trial, the above recited facts were proved, and a letter was produced, of which the following is a copy. Quote, April 8th, 1711. Sir, I shall be able to go abroad to-morrow morning, and desire you will give me a meeting with your sword and pistols, which I insist on. The worthy gentleman who brings you this will concert with you the time and place. I think Tothill Fields will do well. Hyde Park will not, as this time of the year being full of company. I am your humble servant, Richard Thornhill." Mr. Thornhill's servant swore that he believed this letter to be his master's handwriting, but Mr. Thornhill hoped the jury would not pay any regard to this testimony, as the boy had acknowledged in court that he never saw him write. Mr. Thornhill called several witnesses to prove how ill he had been used by Sir Chomley, that he had languished some time of the wounds he had received, during which he could take no other sustenance than liquids, and that his life was in imminent danger. Several persons of distinction testified that Mr. Thornhill was of a peaceable disposition, and that, on the contrary, the deceased was a remarkably quarrelsome temper. On behalf of Mr. Thornhill, it was further deposed that Sir Chomley, being asked if he came by his hurt through unfair usage, he replied, quote, No, poor Thornhill, I am sorry for him. This misfortune was my own fault. 
of my own seeking. I heartily forgive him, and desire you all to take notice of it, that it may be of some service to him, and that one misfortune may not occasion another. End quote. The jury acquitted Mr. Thornhill of murder, but found him guilty of manslaughter, in consequence of which he was burnt in the hand. Account of Elizabeth Mason, who was hanged at Tyburn for poisoning her mistress. Elizabeth Mason was born at Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire, and while very young was conveyed by her friends to Sutton, near Peterborough, in Northamptonshire. From whence, at age seven years, she was brought to London by Mrs. Scholes, who told her she was her godmother, and with this lady and her sister, Mrs. Chowell, she lived till she was apprehended for the commission of the crime for which her life paid the forfeit. This girl, who was employed in household work, having conceived an idea that she should possess the fortune of her mistresses on their death, came to the horrid resolution of removing them by poison. On Thursday, in Easter week, Mason being sent of an errand, she went to a druggist's shop where she bought a quantity of yellow arsenic on the pretense that it was to kill rats. On the following morning she mixed this poison with some coffee of which Mrs. Scholes drank, and afterwards, finding herself extremely ill, said her end was approaching, and expired the next day in great agonies. Mrs. Chole, receiving no injury from that little coffee she drank, the girl determined to renew her attempt to poison her, in consequence of which she again went to the same shop about a fortnight afterwards, and bought a second quantity of arsenic, which she put into some water-gruel prepared for Mrs. Chole's breakfast on the following morning. As it happened, that gruel was too hot. The lady put it aside some time to cool, during which time most of the arsenic sunk to the bottom. Having drank some of it, she found herself very ill and observing the sentiment at the bottom of the basin, she sent for her apothecary, who gave her a large quantity of oil to drink, by the help of which the poison was expelled. Unfavorable suspicions now arising against Elizabeth Mason, she was taken into custody, and being carried before two justices of the peace on the 30th of April, she confessed the whole of her guilt, in consequence of which she was committed to Newgate. On the 6th of June, 1712, she was indicted for the murder of Jane Scholes by mixing yellow arsenic with her coffee, and pleading guilty to the indictment, she received sentence of death, in consequence of which she was executed at Tyburn on the 18th of June, 1712. While she lay under sentence of death, the ordinary of Newgate asked if she had any lover or other person who had tempted her to the commission of the crime to which she answered in the negative, but owned that she had frequently defrauded her mistresses of money, and then told lies to conceal the depredations of which she had been guilty. At the time of her execution she warned other young people to beware of crimes similar to those which had brought her to that fatal end, and confessed the justice of the sentence which made her a public example. Account of Richard Town who was executed for defrauding his creditors under a commission of bankruptcy. In September 1712, Richard Town was indicted at the Old Bailey for withdrawing himself 
from his creditors after a commission of bankrupt issued against him and for removing and fraudulently carrying away fifteen tons of tallow valued at four hundred pounds and four hundred pounds in money with his debt books and books of account with intention to defraud his creditors having pleaded not guilty to the indictment the counsel informed the jury that the act of parliament had expressly declared that quote, if any person being a bankrupt after the month of april seventeen o seven did fraudulently conceal embezzle or make away with goods or money to the value of twenty pounds he should be deemed guilty of a felony a number of witnesses were now called to prove his being a regular trader and to make it appear that he had committed an act of bankruptcy but the principal of these was mr hodgson who deposed that being sent after the prisoner by the commissioners of bankrupt he apprehended him at sandwich and searching him by virtue of his warrant found in his pocket twenty guineas in gold and about five pounds seven shillings and sixpence in silver and that he had three gold rings on his fingers that he took from him the gold and five pounds in silver and left him the odd silver town had intended to sail in a ship which was bound to amsterdam but being too late he went on board the packet-boat to ostend but being taken seasick he went to the side of the vessel and stooping down dropped eight hundred guineas which were in two bags between his coat and his waistcoat into the sea a storm arising at sea the packet-boat was driven back and obliged to put into sandwich in consequence of which town was apprehended by hodgson as above mentioned when town was examined before the commissioners he acknowledged that he had ordered thomas norris to carry off his books of account plate and papers of value and likewise to convey a large quantity of tallow which he supposed was by then arrived in holland now the counsel for town insisted that as norris was joint agent with him the act of one was the act of both and he could not legally be convicted till the other who was then abroad could be apprehended and tried with him but in order to frustrate this argument it was proved that town had shipped off large quantities of goods on his own account besides the circumstance of his being taken at sandwich by mr hodgson with more than twenty pounds of his creditors money in his possession was a sufficient proof of his guilt wherefore the jury did not hesitate on his case and he received sentence of death this unhappy man was a native of the county of oxford and for some time had carried on a considerable business as a tallow chandler with great reputation but it appears too evident that he had formed a design of defrauding his creditors because at the time of his absconding he had considerable property and funds and was otherwise in good circumstances before his conviction he was indulged with a chamber to himself in the press-yard but after sentence was passed on him he was put into the condemned hole with the other prisoners but here he catched a violent cold which brought on deafness a disorder to which he had been subject wherefore on complaining of this circumstance he was removed to his former apartments while under sentence of death he refused to acknowledge the justice of his sentence declaring that a person 
whom he had relieved and preserved from ruin, had occasioned his destruction. He attended the devotions of the place, declared that he forgave his enemies, and begged that God would likewise forgive them. He was executed at Tyburn on the 23rd of December, 1712, being exactly 41 years of age on that day, a circumstance that he remarked to the ordinary on his way to the fatal tree. Mr. Town was the first person who suffered on the act which made it a felony for a bankrupt to conceal the value of twenty pounds or upwards. It is the fate of many an honest man to become bankrupt, and it is but too common for the unfeeling world to brand all bankrupts with the general name of villain. But, we hope, for the honour of human nature, that this name is not deserved once where it is applied a thousand times. It has been the misfortune of some of the worthiest men we have ever known to become bankrupts. On the contrary, many of the most contemptible of the human race have been successful traders, and, in the language of the city, have been, quote, good men, unquote. Undoubtedly, there have been fraudulent bankruptcies, but, comparatively speaking, we believe very few. We have not many instances of traders flourishing in a great degree after a bankruptcy, and what man would wish, if it were in his power, to meet the public contempt and derision for the sake of embezzling a few paltry hundred pounds, and this too at the hazard of his life? With regard to the particular instance before us, we see a strong proof of the wisdom and justice of Providence in preventing this offender from making his escape in the first place, by the ship being sailed, and in the second, by the packet-boat being obliged to put back through stress of weather. Hence, let all who are tempted to commit crimes of a similar or any other nature learn that they can never escape the sight of a just God who ruleth the world in righteousness. Account of Richard Noble, attorney at law, who suffered for the murder of John Sayer, Esquire, with some particulars of the amours of Mr. Noble and Mrs. Sayer. There is something so singular in the case before us, that the reader will be glad to have the particulars of an affair that made much noise in the world at the time it happened, and will be remembered to future ages. John Sayer, Esquire, was possessed of about a thousand pounds a year, and was lord of the manor of Bisledon in Buckinghamshire. He does not appear to have been a man of any great abilities, but was remarkable for his good nature and inoffensive disposition. In 1699 he married Mary, the daughter of Admiral Neville, a woman of an agreeable person and brilliant wit, but of such an abandoned disposition as to be a disgrace to her sex. Soon after this wedding, Colonel Salisbury married the Admiral's widow, but there was such a vicious similarity in conduct of the mother and daughter, that the two husbands had early occasion to be disgusted with the choice they had made. Mr. Sayer's nuptials had not been celebrated many days before his bride took the liberty of kicking him, and hinted that she would procure a lover with whom she might enjoy those pleasures not to be found with her husband. Sayer, who was distractedly fond of her, 
bore this treatment with patience, and at the end of a twelfth month she bare him a daughter, which soon died. But he became still more fond of her after she had made him a father, and was continually loading her with presents. Mr. Sayre now took a house on Lyle Street, Leicester Fields, kept a coach, and did everything which he thought might gratify his wife. But so far from being influenced by this generous conduct, she declared that she would never again admit him to her bed. Irritated by this treatment, he went amongst the women of the town, in consequence whereof he contracted a disorder that obliged him to have the advice of a surgeon and his wife, suspecting what had happened, he made no scruple to acknowledge the fact, and avowed the occasion of it. His health, however, was soon re-established, on which his wife voluntarily admitted him to her bed, but the consequence was that both the parties were soon afterwards indisposed. As the surgeon who had attended Mr. Sayre was a man of character, and professed himself ready to swear to the perfection of his cure, it was shrewdly suspected that the lady, having contracted the disorder, had given it to her husband in order to criminate him in the opinion of his friends. However this be, she affected to be greatly disgusted, again forbade him her bed, and consoled herself with the company of a colonel in the army. At times she behaved with more compliance to her husband, who had, after a while, the honour of being deemed father of another child of which she was delivered. And after this circumstance she indulged herself in still greater liberties than before. Her mother, who was almost constantly with her, encouraging her in the shameful prostitution of manners. At length a scheme was concerted which would probably have ended in the destruction of Mr. Sayre and Colonel Salisbury, if it had not been happily prevented by the prudence of the latter. The Colonel, taking an opportunity to represent to Mrs. Sayre the ill consequences that must attend her infidelity to her husband, she immediately attacked him with the most outrageous language, and insulted him to such a degree that he threw the remains of a dish of tea at her, the mother and daughter immediately laid hold of this circumstance to inflame the passions of Mr. Sayre, whom they at length prevailed on to demand satisfaction of the colonel. The challenge is said to have been written by Mrs. Sayre, and when the colonel received it, he conjectured that it was a plan concerted between the ladies to get rid of their husbands. However, he obeyed the summons, and going in a coach with Mr. Sayre towards Montague House, he addressed him as follows, quote, Son Sayre, let us come to a right understanding of this business. Tis well known that I am a swordsman, and I should be very far from getting any honour by killing you. But to come nearer the point in hand, thou shouldest know, Jack, for all the world knows, that thy wife and mine are both whores. They want to get rid of us at once. If thou shouldest drop, they'll have me hanged for it after." There was so much of obvious truth in this remark, that Mr. Sayre immediately felt its force, and the gentlemen drove home together to the great mortification of the ladies. Soon after this affair, Mrs. Sayre went to her house in Buckinghamshire, where an intimacy took place between her and the curate of the parish, and their amour was conducted with so little reserve that all the 
servants saw that the parson had more influence in the house than the master. Mrs. Sayre, coming to London, was soon followed by the young clergyman, who was seized with the smallpox which cost him his life. When he found that there was no hope of his recovery, he sent to Mr. Sayre, earnestly requesting to see him. But Mrs. Sayre, who judged what he wanted, said her mother had not had the smallpox, and such a visit might cost her her life. Wherefore she insisted that her husband should not go, and the passive man tamely submitted to this injunction, though his wife daily sent a footman to inquire after the clergyman, who died without being visited by Mr. Sayre. This gentleman had not been long dead, before his place was supplied by an officer of the guards. But he was soon dismissed, in favour of a man of great distinction, who presented her with some valuable china, which he pretended was one at Astrop Wells. About this time Mr. Sayre found his affairs considerably deranged by his wife's extravagance, on which a gentleman recommended to him Mr. Richard Noble, an attorney, as a man capable of being very serviceable to him. Noble was the son of a man who kept a very reputable coffee-house at Bath. His parents lived in great credit, and his mother was so virtuous a woman that when Noble afterwards went to her house with Mrs. Sayre in a coach and six, she shut the door against him. Noble had been well educated, and articled to an attorney of eminence at New Inn, in which he afterwards took chambers for himself. But he had not been in any considerable degree of practice when he was introduced to Mr. Sayre. Noble had not been long acquainted with the family before he became too intimate with Mrs. Sayre, and, if report said true, with her mother likewise. However, these two abandoned women had other matters in prospect besides mere gallantry, and considering Noble as a man of business as well as a lover, they concerted a scheme to deprive Mr. Sayre of a considerable part of his estate. The unhappy gentleman, being perpetually teased by the women, at length consented to execute a deed of separation, in which he assigned some lands in Buckinghamshire to the amount of a hundred and fifty pounds a year to his wife, exclusive of fifty pounds a year for pin-money and by this deed he likewise covenanted that Mrs. Sayre might live with whom she pleased, and that he would never molest any person on account of harbouring her. Mr. Sayre was even so weak as to sign this deed without having a counsel of his own to examine it. Not long after Mrs. Sayre was delivered of a child at Bath, but that her husband might not take alarm at this circumstance, Noble sent him a letter, acquainting him that was to be pricked down for High Sheriff of Buckinghamshire, and Mrs. Salisbury had urged him to go to Holland to be out of the way, and supplied him with some money on the occasion. It does not seem probable that Sayre had any suspicion of Noble's criminal intercourse with his wife, for the night before he set out, he presented him with a pair of saddle-pistols and furniture worth forty pounds. Soon after he was gone, Mrs. Sayre's maid, speaking of the danger her master might be in at sea, the abandoned woman said, quote, She should be sorry his man James, a poor innocent fellow, should come to any harm, but she should be glad, 
and earnestly wished that Mr. Sayre might sink to the bottom of the sea, and that the bottom of the ship might come out. End quote. Not long after Mr. Sayre was gone abroad, Noble began to give himself airs of greater consequence than he had hitherto done. He was solicitor in a case in the court of chancery in which Mr. Sayre was plaintiff, and having obtained a decree, he obliged the trustees nominated in the marriage articles to relinquish and assume the authority of a sole trustee. Mr. Sayre remained in Holland near a year, during which Noble publicly cohabited with his wife, and when her husband returned she refused to live with him, but having first robbed him of above two thousand pounds in exchequer bills and other effects, she went to private lodgings with Noble, soon after which she was delivered of another child. After Mrs. Sayre had thus eloped from her husband, he caused an advertisement to be inserted in the newspapers, of which the following is a copy. Quote, Whereas Mary, the wife of John Sayre, Esquire, late of Lyle Street, St. Anne's, went away from her dwelling-house on or about the 23rd of May last, in company with Elizabeth Neville, sister to the said Mary, and hath carried away near a thousand pounds in money, besides other things of considerable value, it is supposed to go by some other name. He desires all tradesmen and others not to give her any credit, for that he will not pay the same. End quote. While Mrs. Sayre cohabited with Noble, he was constantly supplied with money. But he was not her only associate at that time, for, during his occasional absence, she gratified herself with the company of other lovers. Noble now procured an order from the Court of Chancery to make Mr. Sayre in execution for four hundred pounds at the suit of Mrs. Salisbury, the consequence of a judgment confessed by him, for form's sake, to protect his goods from his creditors while he was in Holland. Mr. Sayre declared that the real debt was not more than seventy pounds, though artful management and legal expenses had swelled it to the above-mentioned sum. Hereupon Sarah took refuge within the rules of the fleet prison, and exhibited his bills in chancery for relief against these suits, and the deed of separation which he obtained. But before he had an opportunity of suing out judgment against Noble, the vengeance of heaven overtook that abandoned villain. Mrs. Sayre, finding herself liable to be exposed by the advertisement her husband had caused to be inserted in the newspapers, she, with her mother and noble, took lodgings in the Mint, Southwark, which was at that time a place of refuge for great numbers of persons of desperate circumstances and abandoned dispositions. Mr. Sayre was now informed that his wife had taken lodgings in the Mint, on which he wrote several letters to her promising that he would forgive all her crimes if she would return to her duty but she treated his letters with as much contempt as she had done his person hereupon he determined to seize on her by force presuming that he should recover some of his effects if he could get her into his custody he therefore obtained the warrant of a justice of the peace, and taking with him two constables and six assistants, went to the house of George Twyford in the Mint, the constables intimating that they had a warrant to search for a suspected person, for it had been thought 
that they were bailiffs, their lives would have been in danger. Having entered the house, they went to a back room where Noble, Mrs. Sayre, and Mrs. Salisbury were at dinner, but the door was no sooner opened than Noble drew his sword, and stabbing Sayre in the left breast, he died on the spot. The constables immediately apprehended the murderer and the two women but the latter was so abandoned that while the peace officers were conveying them to the house of a magistrate they did little else than lament the fate of noble as it appeared as if the mob would rise from an apprehension that the prisoners were debtors a constable was directed to carry the bloody sword before them in testimony that murder had been committed which pr produced the wished-for effect by keeping perfect peace the prisoners begged to send for counsel, which being granted, Noble was committed for trial, after an examination of two hours. But the counsel urged so many arguments in favour of the women, that it was ten o'clock at night before they were committed. Soon afterwards, this unworthy mother and daughter applied to the court of King's Bench to be admitted to bail, but this favour was refused them. The coroner's inquest, having viewed Mr. Sayer's body, it was removed to his lodgings within the rules of the fleet in order for internment, and three days afterwards they gave a verdict, finding Noble guilty of willful murder, and the two women of having aided and assisted him in that murder. On the evening of March 12, 1713, they were put to the bar at Kingston in Surrey, and having been arraigned on several indictments, and pleaded not guilty, were told to prepare for their trials by six o'clock on the following morning. Being brought down for trial at the appointed time, they moved the court that their trials might be deferred till the afternoon on the plea that some material witnesses were absent. But the court, not believing their allegations, refused to comply with their request. It was imagined that this motion to put off their trials was founded in the expectation that when the business at the bar was dispatched, many of the jurymen might go home, so that when the prisoners had made their challenges, there might not be a number left sufficient to try them, by which they might escape till the next assizes. They hoped some circumstances would happen in their favour. The trial being ordered to come on, Mr. Noble and Mrs. Salisbury each challenged twenty of the jury, and Mrs. Sayre challenged thirty-five. All persons indicted for felony have a right to challenge twenty jurors, and those indicted for petty treason thirty-five. This may be done without alleging any cause so that it was owing to the great number of juries summoned by the sheriff that the ends of public justice were not, for the present, defeated. It will be unnecessary to recite the particulars of the evidence given on the trial, because those who have read the preceding narrative must be well apprised of its nature. Suffice it to say that the crime of murder was clearly proved against Noble, However, his counsel urged that some of the persons who broke into the house might have murdered Mr. Sayre, or, if they had not, the provocation he had received might be such as would warrant the jury to bring him in guilty of manslaughter only. As the court had sat 
from six in the morning till one o'clock the next morning the jury were indulged with some refreshment before they left the bar and after being out nine hours they gave their verdict that mr noble was guilty and mrs salisbury and mrs sayre were not guilty when mr noble was brought to the bar to receive sentence he made a speech of which the following is a copy Quote, my lord i am soon to appear and render an account of my sins to god almighty if your lordship should think me guilty of those crimes i have been accused with and convicted of by my jury i am then sure your lordship will think that i stand in need of such a reparation such a humiliation for my great offences such an abhorrence of my past life to give me hopes of a future one that i am not without hopes that it will be a motive of your lordship's goodness that after you have judged and sentenced my body to execution you will charitably assist me with a little time for the preservation of my soul if i had nothing to answer for but killing mr sayre was precedent malice i should have no need to address myself to your lordship in this manner it is now too late to take advantage by denying it to your lordship and too near my end to dissemble it before god i know my lord the danger the hell that i should plunge myself headlong into i know i shall soon answer for the truth i am now about to say before a higher tribunal and a more discerning judge than your lordship which is only in heaven that i did not take the advantage to kill mr sayre by a thought or apprehension that i could do it under the umbrage of the law or with impunity and nothing was more distant from my thoughts than to remove him out of the world to enjoy his wife as was suggested without molestation nor could any one have greater reluctance or remorse from the time of the fact to the hour of my trial than i have had though the prosecutors reported to the contrary for which i heartily forgive them my counsel obliged me to say on my trial that i had heard mr sayer's voice before he broke open the door i told him as well as your lordship that i did not know it was him till he was breaking in at the door and then not before was my sword drawn and the wound given which wound dr garth informed me was so slight that it was a thousand to one that he died of it when i gave the wound i insensibly quitted the sword by which means i left myself open for him to have done what was proved he attempted and was so likely for him to have effected visit to have stabbed me which are the circumstances that manifest the greatness of my surprise when i heard the company run up the stairs i was alarmed and in fear the landlord telling me instantly thereupon that the house was beset either for me or himself and added to, to my confusion i then never thought or intended to do mischief but first bolted the fore-door and then bolted and padlocked the back door which was glazed and began to fasten the shutters belonging to it designing only to screen myself from the violence of the tumult when he broke open the door 
and not till then I perceived and knew he was present, and his former threats and attempts, which I so fully proved on my trial, and could have proved much fuller had not Mrs. Salisbury's evidence been taken from me, made me fear so great, and the apprehension of my danger so near, that what I did was the natural motion of self-defence, and was too sudden to be the result of precedent malice. And I solemnly declare that I did not hear or know from Twyford the landlord, or otherwise, that any constable attended the deceased till after the misfortune happened. It was my misfortune that what I said as to hearing the deceased's voice was turned to my disadvantage by the counsel against me and that i was not entitled to any assistance of counsel to enforce the evidence given for me or to remark upon the evidence given against me which i don't doubt would have fully satisfied your lordship and the jury that what happened was more my misfortune than any design or intention if I had been able, under the concern, to remark upon the evidence against me that Mr. Sayre was but the tenth part of a minute in breaking open the door, it could not then well be supposed by the jury that I was preparing myself or putting myself in order to do mischief, which are the acts of forethought and consideration which require much more time than is pretended I could have had from the time I discovered Mr. Sayre for even from his entry into the house to the time of the accident did not amount as i am informed to more than the space of three minutes but i did not discover him before the door gave way i wish it had been my good fortune that the jury had applied that to me which your lordship remarked in favour of the ladies that the matter was so very sudden so very accidental and unexpected that it was impossible to be a contrivance and confederacy and unlikely that they could have come to a resolution in so short a time i don't remember your lordship distinguished my case as to that particular to be different from theirs nor was there room for it for it is impossible for your lordship to believe that i had dreamt of mr sayre's coming there at that time but on the contrary i fully proved to your lordship that i went there upon another matter that was lawful and beneficial to the deceased and that i had no more time to think or to contrive than the ladies had to agree or consent if anything could be construed favourably on the behalf of such an unfortunate wretch as myself, I think the design I had some time before began, and was about finishing that day, might have taken away all suspicion of malice against Mr. Sayre. Must it be thought, my lord, that I only am such a sinner that I cannot repent and make reparations to the persons I have injured? It was denied but i strongly solicited a reconciliation between mr sayre and his lady and if this had tended to procure me an easier access to mrs sayre it would have been such a matter of aggravation to me that it could not have escaped the remark of counsel against me nor the sharpness of the prosecutors present in court with both i transacted and to both i appealed particularly to mr knott to whom 
but the day before the accident I manifested my desire of having them live together again, and therefore, my lord, it should be presumed that I laboured to be reconciled to, and not to revenge myself on, Mr. Sayre. Your lordship, I hope, will observe so much in my favour, that it was not so far from being a clear fact in opinion of the jury, that they sat up all night, and believing there was no malice at that time, told your lordship they intended, and were inclined to find it manslaughter, and doubting the legality of the warrant, to find it special. I hope this will touch your lordship's heart so far, as not to think me so ill a man as to deserve, what the best Christians are taught to pray against, a sudden death. I confess I am unprepared. The hopes of my being able to make a legal defence, and my endeavours therein having taken up my time which I wish I had better employed. I beg leave to assure your lordship upon the words of a dying man, that as none of the indirect practices to get or suppress evidence were proved upon me, so they never sprang from me and I can safely say that my blood in a great measure will lie at their door that did, because it drew me under ill imputation of defending myself by subornation of perjury. I would be willing to do my duty towards my neighbor as well as God before I die. I have many papers and concerns by reason of my profession, of my clients in my hands, and who will suffer if they are not put in some order, and nothing but these two considerations could make life desirable under this heavy load of irons and the relentless remorse of conscience for my sins. A short reprieve for these purposes, I hope, will be agreeable to your lordship's humanity and Christian virtue, whereupon your lordship's name will be blessed with my last breath, for giving me an opportunity of making peace with my conscience and God Almighty. The last request that Noble made was granted. He was allowed some time to settle his spiritual and temporal concerns, and at length was executed at Kingston on the 28th of March, 1713, exhibiting marks of genuine repentance. With regard to the women, they were no sooner acquitted than they set out for London, taking one of the turnkeys with them to protect them from the assaults of the populace who were incensed in the highest degree at the singular enormity of their crimes. Little need be added by way of reflection to this long and interesting narrative. Those who do not see and abhor the extreme wickedness of these abandoned women are not likely to be influenced by any arguments we can use. The situation of Mr. Sayre is pitiable in a high degree. He was distractedly fond of a woman who despised him, and who despised everything that bore the semblance of virtue. The fate of Noble was no other than that that he merited, by a long and obstinate perseverance in a course of vice and ingratitude. His baseness is almost unexampled. We hope the force of the following advice of the wise King Solomon will be felt by all our readers. Quote, 
Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not into the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it. Pass away. For they sleep not, except that they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. End quote. This is the end of part four of